Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Titus, chapter 1, back towards the, uh, the back of the New Testament, book of Titus, chapter 1. We uh, ironically started a series in this book of Titus uh, back in October, back in the fall. Some of you may remember we did kind of an initial message out of the book of Titus and didn't really dig into chapter 1, verse 1, uh, but we did sort of a, what I call a flyover, looked at some of the kind of the key themes that we're going to be unpacking as we move through a series in the book of Titus. And you may remember I preached that one message and the next uh, the next Sunday we were out because Hurricane Matthew had struck. And so the following Sunday, two weeks later, uh, I felt compelled to uh, begin a brand new series called The Platform, where we looked at the platforms that God gives us to live out our faith and to put Christ on display. And so we, we kind of put Titus on a shelf, you know, poor guy, and we, we put him up on a shelf, and then as soon as that series was done, we were pretty much up into the holidays and did a Christmas series and, and uh, on from there. So, you know, I feel that it's time now to bring Titus back off the shelf and for us to begin moving through this, through this book. So how many of you have ever been through, where you've read through the book of Titus? I'm just curious. Let me see your hands, all right? So this is a brand new book for quite a few of you. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series through the book of Titus completely? Let me see your hands, all right? Much, much less, uh, uh, far, far fewer. For some reason, it's interesting, and I don't quite know why, but the book of Titus isn't really dug into very often. Uh, you know, it's one of what we call the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. First and Second Timothy would be the other two, uh, but it seems as though First and Second Timothy get a lot of attention, and Titus doesn't get much of attention at all. And so uh, you're going to really be surprised, I think, at, at what is covered in this book. Just three chapters long. You could probably sit and read it in about 10 or 15 minutes, if that. And uh, in fact, I would encourage you to do that sometime this week just to get a good understanding of what the book deals with. But this is a powerful book. And uh, it deals not just with life on a personal level, but it also deals with life on kind of a, I would call it a local church level as well. And so this series is going to be beneficial, hopefully for you as a person. I, th- I really think it will be. But also at the same time, it's going to take us into some territory for us as a, as a ministry, as a local church that hopefully will be uh, uh, grateful, or rather will be beneficial for us, that we'll be grateful for the time that we have spent in it. So the book of Titus is where we're going to be this morning, moving through a series I'm expecting will be probably eight to ten messages long, so not a real lengthy series, but one that's going to be uh, hopefully a huge advantage for you and also for us as a ministry as well. So here are a couple things that are dealt with in the book of Titus. One, that when you move through this book, what you'll find is it's dealing a lot with the structure of a local church. It's dealing a lot with the, 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 the official, the formal structure of the local church and also the mission of the local church as well. You know, we are just one church among many. Uh, there are churches scattered all over this globe, as you know. We, we were reminded of that in the video from the Philippines just earlier in this service. But there are churches scattered all over the globe. When we go to Cuba in uh, just a matter of about three months or so, on our mission trip, uh, we'll be dealing with a local church that's there. And all over this world, there are local churches, local congregations, much like us. They are proclaiming the same message. They are pursuing the same God. They are seeking to live out their faith in a public way. And they're ultimately, in many ways, facing obstacles as they seek to do that. In Somalia, they are less than 1% Christian there. The church isn't able to practice its faith openly and with freedom. Whereas here in our own country, we can do this boldly. We can have church. There's no one that's going to stop us from doing that. We can live out our faith publicly in ways that you can't all easily do around the world as well. And, and so when we see that in Scripture, we see this whole concept of the local church. And what we have to keep in mind is that the, the local church is not, it's not an institution, 
right? It's not this, this institution that exists that somehow gets ministry done. The local church is a movement. And whenever we see the local church as a movement, what we need to understand is that every single one of us have a part to play in that. In a very real way, you are the church. In a very real way, you are an embodiment of what Jesus brought into existence called the local church that was born in the book of Acts chapter 2, but which Jesus spoke of even before that. And so it's not an institution. If you've got this idea that the church is an institution that somehow gets ministry done, you know, the wheels turn and everything just sort of happens and all we do is give to it and all we do is show up at it, that, that is not the picture of church. The church is a movement of people. And even though we use the terminology that says, you know what, I went to church today or I'm going to church next Sunday, more than buildings, more than an institution, it is a movement of people of which you, if you are a follower of Jesus, are a huge part. So the book of Titus covers a lot of that. It covers the, the structure, it covers the mission of the local church, but at the same time, it's also going to cover some of the challenges of the local church. When you read through Titus, and if you're here faithfully through this series, and I hope you will be, what you're going to find is that there are some, some huge obstacles, some, some just gigantic challenges that are being faced in the local church here in the context of the book of Titus. You're going to find that Paul, as he writes this letter to Titus, is giving him instruction on how to oversee the ministry in an area called Crete, in the island of Crete, which certainly you've heard of. He's going to be overseeing the ministry there. And the ministry in Crete was just absolutely filled with challenges, filled with difficulties. One, there was no leadership. There, there was no formal leadership structure. So the churches were very scattered in how they, how they carried out their mission. Two, there was, a, I guess you could say there was a sense of moral laxity. You know, there, 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 were, there, were, there were no real moral boundaries. They were getting pushed further and further out so, to the point to where the believers that would acknowledge that they'd given their lives to Christ, they weren't living out their life with Christ in a way that strengthened their message. In fact, it complicated, it, it, it confused the message. You know, they would say on one hand, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then the way they would live their lives and some of the decisions they were making, I mean, just really were confusing to their hearers because it didn't match the message they proclaimed, a message of godliness. Uh, in addition to that, there was also an issue with false teaching that had begun to creep into the churches scattered around the island of Crete. False teachers that were coming in and they were adding to the gospel. They were adding to God's word to the point to where Paul told Titus, you got to deal with this because this is going to cause an issue down the road. It's causing issues now and it has to be addressed. And so Paul writes this letter to Titus to deal with these issues in the churches on the island of Crete. Here's the thing to me. The, the, this, this Bible that you hold in your lap is totally and completely up to date. And a reason we can understand that is because the same issues they faced in the churches scattered around the island of Crete in Paul and Titus's day are in many ways the same challenges that the church faces today, even here in our own country. There is a kind of an absence of leadership in many ways, leadership that points local congregations to seek to honor God and to do what God wants. There is many times a challenge with, with the body of Christ, believers, Christians, moving the boundaries of what we know God expects of us, you know, to where we emphasize grace, as we've sung about today, beyond where it should be emphasized, to the point to where it almost is viewed as giving us license to live life however we want to. That is not what grace is, all right? Grace covers our sins, absolutely. Grace covers, and, 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 and grace applies forgiveness when we fall short, but it's not a license for us to live life outside the boundaries of what God has given us as truth. 
And so the local church today really has to deal with that and grapple with that to where we need to live right down to a person. We need to live in a way where our, our lifestyle, our lives match the message that we proclaim and that we claim has changed our lives. And so in the book of Titus, all these things are going to be addressed. All these things are going to be deal, dealt with. But let me just say, there is, there is huge application for us, not only as individual believers, but for us as a ministry and as a church as well. You know, for this church, First Baptist of the Islands, I wasn't here when it started, when it was planted uh, years and decades ago. I've been here for a little while, but I wasn't here at the very beginning. Some of you were. Some of you were kids back when this church started. Some of you were uh, a part of kind of those early days of when this church was planted, when this church was begun. But all I can speak for is now, and I can say that there is a wide open door for this local church, for this ministry, to have a gigantic impact in this community and in the city in a way that extends even beyond the borders of our city or our state. There is a wide open door. God desires to use this church to make a difference, but it will not happen because we push the right buttons to make it happen. It will not happen because, uh, you know, I sing some, or I, I sing, that certainly won't happen if I sing. It won't happen because, uh, you know, I preach some fancy message or something that happens. It's going to happen when we live our lives in yieldedness to God, in yieldedness to the Holy Spirit for Him to do His work through us. And so we begin to see some of that here as we move through the book of Titus. So let me give you a little bit of a background. The setting of this book, just three chapters long, the setting, as I mentioned earlier, is on the island of Crete. Crete, about 160 miles long, uh, in some places as little as seven miles wide, other places 30 miles wide. But on this island is where this book takes place. On the island of Crete, you had pockets of believers. You had churches, local congregations that were scattered. And the, more than likely, they were birthed, uh, you know, if you've read New Testament history much at all, in the book of Acts chapter 2, there was this big message that Peter preached there in the city of Jerusalem. Nationalities, people from all nations were gathered there. Peter preaches this message. He shares the gospel. And many people, 3,000 that day, gave their lives to Jesus. Well, the Bible says uh, there in Jerusalem, that's called Pentecost. It's kind of like the message on Pentecost there. There were uh, th those 3,000 that got saved were from all different backgrounds. And after that, that time ended, they all went back to their hometowns, many of them. And we would undoubtedly expect that there were those from the island of Crete who placed their faith in Jesus there under the preaching of the gospel. And then they went back to their home. They went back to their island. And as a result of that, we can assume then that they shared their faith and that others placed their faith in Jesus, not much unlike what happens in the Philippines where we send a team, people accept Christ, Bible studies form, churches get planted, they begin to grow and more, it just continues outward, outward, outward. That's what happened here. And so those believers would hear the message of the gospel in Jerusalem, travel back home to Crete. They would undoubtedly begin to spread the message. Churches would be planted. Churches would begin to grow. But by the time that Titus and Paul would come along, those churches were in many ways in their infancy. They were very immature in their faith. They were dealing with all those issues that I talked about. There was a lack of leadership. There was no one to kind of cast the vision. There was no one to, to lead that work, to lead those ministries. The, the, the believers were just scattered. And they weren't living lives to honor God. False doctrine was sweeping in. You kind of imagine if you were to go to Walmart, right, here on the island or somewhere in town. You go to Walmart, 
And just imagine, you didn't know this, but six months ago, all the leaders left, all the managers left, everybody just kind of left, and, the, and, and it's just sort of been going on now for six months with no leadership. You know, you go to check out and you go up to the cashier. The cashier, she's not operating by truth, right? She's not charging what's on the price. Whatever she feels like, that's what she's going to charge. So you go to get your, you know, your, your little jug of Tide, and if she wants to give it to you for four bucks, she rings in four dollars. That's a big score for you. I'd recommend two or three jugs of that Tide at that price. But then she may not feel that way. She may feel more like, you know what, I'm going to charge $40 for this Tide. And imagine, you can't go anywhere else. That's the only place where you can shop. You're just kind of stuck there. You can't just bail out and go to another Walmart or Target or, you know, CVS. That's the only place where you can shop. And it is just a madhouse. There's no leadership. Everybody's doing whatever they want. They're charging whatever they want. They all go to their staff meetings, and they all agree with the policies. But then whenever they go out for the workday, they just sort of do whatever they want. You know, nobody's abiding by the rules. It's just an absolute, just absolute chaos. And that's kind of what happened for Titus. Imagine you get put in charge of fixing that whole gigantic mess in Walmart. And not just that Walmart, but all the others scattered around the state of Georgia while you're at it. That would be a bit overwhelming. That's what Titus faced. And it wasn't a Walmart, it was ministry. It wasn't individual stores. There were individual congregations of believers called churches. And so Paul leaves Titus behind on the island of Crete. He kind of waves goodbye as he sails away. And then after a short period of time, perhaps, sometime down the road, Paul writes a letter back to Titus, and it's that letter that you have in front of you. And it's in this letter where Paul hits the high points, and he gives Titus his marching orders. And he says, if the local church in this island of Crete is going to flourish, then these are things you have to do. And for three chapters... He gives him insight and he gives him instruction. And what he shares with him is, as I said before, of enormous value for us in how we do ministry here in this local church called First Baptist of the Islands. But also, as you'll see as we move through this book, there are going to be huge applications for you in your own walk with God as well. So let's go ahead and jump into the book of Titus. This morning, we're going to begin in verse 1. We'll move through verse 5. If you have your Bible, you can read along with me. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we've got some outside at the lobby, in the, in the welcome lobby desk. They're all free. Grab you one. Let them know you'd like to get a copy of that, and then you can have a copy of God's Word for yourself. But this morning, if you don't have a copy, we can read along together. So let's jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to ultimately today make it through verse 5. So Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to Titus. You kind of know the backstory now. And so he says, as he begins, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there for a second because you'll see that word bondservant highlighted. I've highlighted that for a reason. That is a very important word. In the Greek language, the language in which the New Testament was originally written, that Greek word is the Greek word doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. And it's, it's um, often translated bondservant or maybe even bond slave. And what Paul is communicating here is the nature of the life that's yielded to Jesus. He doesn't describe himself merely as a follower of Christ. He describes himself as a bondservant of God. A bondservant, a doulos, a slave, was typically, when this language is, is implemented, it refers to a slave who became a slave at birth. Not someone who was made a slave, you know, in their teens or in their 20s or their 30s or as an adult. He, this is referring to a slave that was made a slave at birth. And there's an interesting parallel here because Paul, in a sense, is saying, you know what? There was a point in my life where I did not live my life as a slave of God, yielded and totally surrendered to him. 
He said, but there was a time in my life where I had a second birth, where I turned from my sin, and I I laid my life out before the Lord, and I trusted Jesus and his work on the cross to bring forgiveness. And so there was a point that when I gave my life to Jesus, I was born again, right? Uh, The book of John, John chapter 3 tells us about that. He said, I was born again. I experienced the second birth. And so since that time, I now live my life as a bondservant, as a slave, as a doulos of God. And so describing himself to Titus, he says, I am a bondservant of God, and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, I have been put on a mission specifically to share the message of the gospel and to grow up the people of God. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In other words, as he's speaking into a context here on the island of Crete where where truth is up for grabs, truth is being determined as they go, Paul is reminding Titus up front. He said, no, the real truth is that which is according to godliness. It's according to God's word. Verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time he manifested even his word, and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul is just kind of hitting the high points here. He's talking about how he is a bondservant of God. All of us as believers are bondservants of God, right? We're bondservants of Christ. Paul is talking about eternal life because that's what, it, what is at stake is eternity. He's talking about the unchanging truth of God. And now he gets to verse 4 and he says in his letter to Titus, my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. He was a Greek. Paul led Titus to faith in Christ. So when Paul says, you're my true child, he wasn't speaking from a biological sense. He was speaking from a spiritual sense that Titus was one that he had led to faith in Jesus. He had shared the gospel with Titus, and Titus had placed his faith in Christ. Titus and Paul would have had uh, acquaintance for over 15 years. Titus was with Paul, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Titus was with Paul in Corinth in the pages of the book of Acts. It's in the Ministry there on Corinth that Titus would have been exposed to some of the worst that church can be. Titus was there on the front lines with Paul. He saw how Paul handled those issues. And so now when it's time to do ministry on the island of Crete, where there are also uh, uh, just very, very difficult issues, he was the perfect person for Paul to plant there. And so Paul references him, obviously, in this letter because he's writing to him, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. It's after this greeting then that he jumps right down to to business. And for the rest of this letter through chapter 3, verse 15, he is dealing with issues. He is giving structure and and encouragement. He's giving admonition, all because the message of the gospel in some ways even depends on it. So let's see what he says in verse 5 as he begins to get down to specifics. First order of business, chapter 1, verse 5. He says to Titus, for this reason... I left you in Crete. Remember, Paul was with Titus in Crete. Paul left, and now Titus is in charge. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and that you would appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He said, I want you to set in order what remains. It's an interesting Greek word that's used there. Uh, It's the Greek word epideortho, and it's from that Greek word that we get a couple of English words, orthodontist. Uh, orthopedics or orthopedist, 
right? Uh, it comes from that same Greek word. And what that Greek word means, you see it translated, is to set in order. Uh, think about it this way. An, an orthodontist, uh, maybe you went to get braces when you were a teenager and you went to that orthodontist. Why? Because your teeth needed to be straightened, right? It was his job as an orthodontist to straighten your teeth, to straighten what, what was not in order. If you go to an orthopedist, an orthopedic surgeon, they're going to, to, to repair a, bro- a, a broken bone that is not in order. It needs to be set. It needs to be set in place. It needs to be repaired. It needs to be mended. And so here, this Greek word epideortho, Paul is saying to Titus, you need to set in order that which remains. You look at the local church in Crete, in the, on the island of Crete, Titus, and it is way out of order. It, they, they don't have leadership. They don't have moral standards. They're not a, holding to truth. They're letting false doctrine come in. They're doing one thing and, and saying another. There, there are things that need to be set in order. And so, Titus, you need to set these things in order. And here's how I'm going to tell you to begin the journey to do this. The end of verse 5, he says, you need to appoint elders in every city as I direct you. And it's interesting. I know this is a lot of teaching, but I want you to hang in here because there's an application to it. He says, I want you to point elders. It's the, the Greek word presbyteros. It, it, it translates elders. Could also mean pastors. It's the same thing. When you read through scripture and you read about elders, you can translate that word pastors. They're interchangeable. He's not talking necessarily about a structure where you have pastors and elders. A church is not unbiblical to do that. But this word, elders, presbyteros, it, can, it means pastors. And so he's telling Titus, when you go to the various cities where a local congregation is found in Crete, you need to appoint elders. You need to make sure there is a pastor, or that he even uses the plural there, that there are pastors that are there overseeing that particular work. There needs to be a structure that is in place. It is interesting that before he ever tries to fix any other issues going on in these churches on Crete, that he puts in place leadership. Here at our church, we have five pastors that serve on staff uh, that God has, has called, that God has planted here, that God has placed here. And it only serves to remind us that there is a New Testament structure to how the local church today is to operate. And, and there's a takeaway to this, and I hope you'll jot it down. There's two of them today. You get two for free. It's kind of like Brewster's. When you go to Brewster's and it's raining, you get an extra scoop free, right? You do that, ice cream. Uh, today, it's raining outside. I'm not just going to give you one takeaway. I'm going to give you two. So it's kind of like Brewster's that way. And some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. So we'll move on, all right? So here's a little takeaway. Here's a, a quick little point. We'll bring it up on the overhead. To be most effective When we think about a local church, to be most effective in accomplishing God's work, every single local church has to understand the difference between form and function. Every single local church, this one included, to be most effective in accomplishing God's work, we have to understand our form and we have to understand our function. Let me illustrate for just a second. Maybe when you were in school, if you took an architecture class or if you took another type of class, maybe you covered some of this that talked about form and function. Form always follows function. Form refers to kind of the outward design of an object. Function refers to the purpose of an object. Let's use a a vase as an example. There is a reason that a vase carries the form that it does. There is a reason that it is vertical and not horizontal. There is a reason that it is enclosed. The reason that it is shaped the way that it is and the reason that it extends vertically and not horizontally is because its function, its purpose 
is to provide a place for a flower or flowers to be placed and to be placed in water to extend their life. And so its function to hold flowers is what determines its form and its shape. You think about a bucket, for example. You may have seen some buckets in this room today, right? A bucket is designed, its form, it's enclosed, it can hold liquid, it has a bottom, it has a handle, right? That's the, the function is to be able to pick things up, whether liquid or solid, and to move them from one place to another, to be mobile. And so its form with a handle it helps it to accomplish its function. You think about a coat hanger. There is a reason a coat hanger extends this way and not this way. Why? Because if it extended this way, it could not fit through the armholes in your shirt. And so its function is to enable your clothes to dry quickly. Right? And so its form accomplishes its function. It extends outward and it gives a way to move through the arms right, and to hold that, that piece of clothing up there. I know that sounds silly, but it reminds us that in much of life, there is a function and then there is a form. And when you look at the early church, there is a reason that it is formed the way that it is. There is a reason that there are leadership, that, uh, leadership positions that are taught about in Scripture because it's those positions that should help the church to, up, to ultimately uh, accomplish its function. So what is the function of the local church? Maybe in some churches you've been at, the function of the local church was just to provide a really good time. You know, you come and, and you hear music, it just makes you feel good, and it makes you kind of get into it. Then you hear a message that's going to make you feel good, kind of make you go out feeling really good about yourself. Maybe even while you live your life and just sort of total outright rebellion against God, still it's just going to pump you up and make you feel good about yourself, right? Sometimes you go to churches and you, you, you don't even know what the function is, right? You've been there and you don't quite understand what it is they're aiming for. Here's what we need to understand from Scripture. The function of the local church is to advance the gospel. That is the primary overarching purpose behind the creation of the local church. Jesus, before he ascended back to heaven, would leave 12, uh, 11 guys behind him that were faithful and that were true. Those 11 guys would not be able to reach the world for Christ. And so Jesus would begin to talk in language terms of the church. All right, talking about the church. In the book of Acts chapter 2, when the church is born, it was to advance the message of the gospel. That is the primary reason for which we exist, is to get the gospel to the nations. That's why every local church should exist, is to get the gospel to where it needs to be heard. At the same time, however, there is also another function to the local church, and that is to provide biblical instruction for the followers of Jesus, so that as the message of the gospel gets put out to the nations, it's a gospel that is true to God's word and not one that we've just added to or, or, or made up that we think sounds better. Okay, And so Scripture, the local church, work together to help instruct believers and equip believers to live out the function of advancing the message of the gospel. That's the function. And so Paul here is talking about the form. He says to Titus, you need to put leaders. You need to go to every city where there's a local congregation, and you need to put in place uh, uh, elders. You need to put in place, place pastors that can oversee this work. So that the function of the local church can be able to help accomplish the purpose for which it was created. Now, there's a couple of dangers here. There, there, are, there are a couple of dangers, and I, and, and I understand it, and this is why we have to constantly pray. One danger at the local church level is that we begin to treat pastors as though they are some super saints or somehow, you know, God has handpicked them and they are a breed apart from everybody else. I promise you that's not an issue here because uh, you know me too well for that. But there are some places where pastors are placed on a platform that is far higher than it should be. 
All right? Paul is not saying anything at all here about pastors being better than or more spiritual than anybody else. He is just simply saying there is an office in the local church that needs to be filled by a leader. God says, I'll pick who they are, local church, you just follow my lead. I promise you, there is not a pastor in existence that is any better than the people that he has been placed with the responsibility of leading. We are all very much the same. But the other danger at the local church level is in not understanding that there is a New Testament God-appointed position of leader called the pastor. And again, not an issue here in this church. This has been a blessing to be pastor of for over 14 years. But in many churches, and I hear the horror stories, there is very little consideration for the fact that God has placed a leader in the midst called the pastor and virtually no one responds to his lead. So Paul says, in order for the church to be most effective, it needs to understand its function of not just being a social club, it's not that at all, but of being an absolute army in engagement, advancing the gospel, and putting solid tracks for its people to run on that are based in biblical truth. While at the same time, understanding that there is a form, that there is a structure, and that there are those who are responsible and accountable before God for leading in a way that reflects Him, those that are called pastors. Which leads us to a second and a final application here, a takeaway or principle. And that second one is this, that there are those who lead within the church, but then there are also those who lead as the church. There are those who lead within the church, and there are lo- those who lead as the church. See, I mentioned two dangers at the local church level as it relates to pastors. One is that they're somehow different than everybody else, better than, not the case. The other is they have no voice. Who are they? We can vote them out and get rid of them just as easily as when we voted them in. So we don't have to listen to anything they have to say. It shouldn't be that way. But then there's also a third misunderstanding, and the misunderstanding is that, well, we have a pastor or pastors, so then isn't the work of ministry solely their job? I mean, if we're going to reach our community, isn't that what he's supposed to do? (laughs) I mean, if we're going to care for each other, isn't that what he's supposed to do? If we're going to have an impact on this place where we live, isn't that what pastors are supposed to accomplish? And there's also this misunderstanding that for the person who's a part of the body of Christ, it's almost this misunderstanding that, you know what, I'm off the hook here. And that's not the case. Because there are those who lead within the church as leaders that Scripture speaks of, but then there are other leaders in the midst as well, and those leaders lead as the church. See, there are places where you can go There are people that you can reach in settings in life that I'll never have a hearing with. And the moment they find out I'm a pastor, it's like, I've met plenty of you guys, and I don't want anything to do with you, you know? They have all these misconceptions, and sadly, sometimes those misconceptions aren't off base. But there are people that you know that I can't go waltzing in to have a relationship or friendship with them. They won't give me a hearing for whatever reason, but they will listen to you because you're in the trenches where they are. And you're a leader in their life. 
And so there are those of us who lead within the church, and then there are those who lead as the church. Look at how Paul puts this in a letter, separate letter to the church in Ephesus. Look, look at how he words this in the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, and he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. See, the whole reason these positions exist, the whole reason that the position of pastor exists on a local church level is so that there is a form in place to equip the people within the body of Christ for the work of service. It would be wrong to expect that a pastor or a group of pastors carry the sole responsibility of doing ministry. That is completely and totally outside the boundaries of Scripture. The picture here is that it's our responsibility and our obligation as pastors here to equip you, to equip the saints that are part of this ministry for your own works of service, to where you advance the gospel through your life, to where you are able to, to, to build relationships with others, to show them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus so that you can find those that are maybe a little earlier on in their faith behind you to kind of pull them along with you as you pour into them. What an amazing sight that would be, right? If we as a church had that kind of a model here where we knew what our marching orders were, that's to live out our faith with boldness in the public arena, to be able to pour our lives, invest our lives in one another so that we're not alone because we're a family, but then to also have a structure in place that helps to equip and helps to pour into and to where we give consistently so we have the resources needed to accomplish God's work in this world. And what if down to a person, every single one who is a part of this ministry didn't just come to fill their seat to be able to enjoy the show on a Sunday morning, but what if every single person understood that this is like our pep rally in a way, and I'm going to get the instruction I need, and I may be confronted with some sin in my life at times, and I'm going to be encouraged, I'm going to be reminded that God is with me, and that he's loved, He loves me, He's for me and not against me. But when I break this place at, at 12.05 on a Sunday morning, man, I'm going out into my work field, I'm going out into the mission, and I'm going to be able to live out my faith and to put Him on display as I do it. And how long do you think it would take for this ministry to have an impact on everyone in this community and in this city if that was the mentality that every single one of us carried? Not just doing missions because I'm on the next mission team, but waiting until that team comes. And as I do, I'm doing mission right here in my own backyard and in my workplace and in my family and in my community and with my neighbors and on my campus and everywhere God sends me. And that's the picture that Paul paints for Titus. And he says, Titus, before we ever deal with the issues on the inside, man, we've got to make sure that there is a form, there is a structure, there is a leadership in place. That leadership is not going to be perfect. That leadership is going to make mistakes. They're going to fall short and they're going to be on the anvil being groomed into the image of Christ just like the people they lead. But the overarching goal is to dot the landscape of this island called Crete, Titus with churches that are effective and that are healthy and that understand their call and who impact the world as a result of it. Imagine for a moment, if you let your mind wander, how many people do you feel like this ministry could impact in the days and months and years ahead? It's an odd day, I guess, for me to even go this direction, being that we're so low in number with the weather. But maybe it's the right time to say this. How big would the field be, do you think, that God could give us if we were faithful down to a person to live out our faith boldly, to live lives as bondservants totally surrendered to the Lord, 
and to seek to advance the cause for which Jesus died, the advancement of the gospel. I remember sitting in some planning meetings years ago before we did our rebuilding, our, our new build stuff here, and saying, we talked about, you know, I felt like we could run a thousand one day here. And, and I remember almost kind of the astonishment to some degree about, <laughs> what, a thousand? You know, it's not about the numbers. I understand that. If you've been here long, you understand I'm not constantly pumping numbers. But I do also understand that those numbers represent people. And the people are the ones for whom Jesus died. And so the greater the numbers, the greater the impact. And it becomes exponential at that point because if those people that are reached on the inside then begun to take that message to the outside, that the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel is only advanced quicker and further. We had over 600 people here last Sunday. You may not know, we had 70 in Kid Life Worship last Sunday during this session upstairs. 70 kindergarten through fifth graders upstairs. We have 74 seats. <laughs> Whenever you look at this particular community in which we live, over 20,000 people are part of this community. We all know because we don't like to tr- cross over that bridge to go into town if we don't want to. Right? We understand that. Our ministry field is very easily defined at 31410. We have people that come from in, in town in Savannah. We have folks that live at Tybee. We've got people that come even historically from other counties. One couple that drives over an hour to get here from clear all the way just about to Statesboro every Sunday for service, serving. <laughs> but for most of us, this ministry field is very quickly and very easily defined. It's right here in our own zip code. We couldn't build enough buildings to house the people that God wants to bring here, I believe. But you know what? It's not going to be a matter of making a difference because we push the right buttons and sing the right songs and do the right sermon series. It's not going to happen because of that. It's not going to happen for any other reason except the people of God understand the beauty of their salvation and they never get over the fact that God has chosen to save them and they take that out into the streets and into the workplaces and into the communities and into their front yards and they begin to live out their faith without conflict, right? What they say, they also do. And they have a passion to reach people with the message of the gospel and the love of Jesus. And if we're only faithful to do that, man, I'm telling you, There is no limit to what God could do through this ministry. And it would blow us away as to the people that God reaches because of their hunger for the message that can change everything for them. But we have to be willing and we have to be available and we have to be just as Paul in verse 1, chapter 1. We have to be a bondservant, a doulos, totally surrendered and all in for the person of Jesus. You know, when we look ahead, these are exciting days. Man, God is moving. (laughs) Whenever we begin to look around us, we see that these are crucial days because people are dying. I haven't read the paper yet today, but I would imagine there are probably 30 to 35 names in the obituary, and there will be another 30 to 35 tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. There is no guarantee. And I'm telling you, heaven is real, hell is real, the gospel is the only message that saves. And there are people dying all around us every day who never have the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. These are crucial days, and these are dangerous days, because the enemy hates everything that this church stands for. And he hates the Lord that you've surrendered your life to. And so we have to be diligent, we have to be together, and we have to be urgent. The gospel, in many ways, depends on it.
Hey, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, there is no better time than today, right now, to choose to have your sins forgiven, washed away, as you invite the Lord Jesus, who died and rose in your place, to come and take residence in your life, to take over. And if you've made that decision, heaven awaits. <laughs> Whether you're willing to report for duty and to say, as, as many before us have said, Lord, here am I. Use me. Let's pray. God, it must break your heart.